Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hi, uh, my name is Jeremy Lightning, and I'm here with General Zod. <laughs> That's uh, a good one. Uh, and uh, we are going to cover Matthew chapters 21 to 25. For those of you like me who are not comic book aficionados, uh, General Zod would be one of the uh, villains of Superman, but also a fellow alien from Superman's planet, right? Uh, they they came from the same race of uh, super uh, heroes or super what, beings. What, what planet? Uh, Krypton. Oh, you are good. Yeah. And, uh, and But then uh, he didn't really like the way that Superman was taking things, is my understanding of it. Um, I won't fill you in anymore. That's okay. good enough. But uh, General Zod is my Z for Pastor Zarling today. Uh, and we are going to talk about uh, Jesus sort of acting like a superhero, I guess. We're going to start with uh, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he was hailed as a superhero as a king and uh, maybe some of the people thought uh, some uh, sort of misconstrued things about the messiah and they they maybe thought that he was going to be a rescuer from the romans but uh, jesus doesn't rebuke them so i i suppose you could also say um that uh, they had the right idea about his messianic work um i don't know i, I think a lot of times that there are people who like to point out, and, and if you've done this, I've only gone through one Passion history or one Lenten season with you, so I don't remember if you've done this or not, but I hear a lot of times people say that the very same crowds who were uh, cheering Hosanna on Palm Sunday were then shouting, crucify him uh, later in the week. And uh, I, I think it's it, it's important that Jesus uh, doesn't rebuke them it's it's worth noting just to think about that uh, maybe they weren't misguided in their thoughts about his messianic work. Yeah, I think early on in my ministry, I thought that they were the two two of the same groups. Uh, that the group that was on Sunday cheering for Jesus were calling for his crucifixion. But uh, I've come to learn now Jerusalem's full of people on yeah. on uh, Holy Week, and so it, these are two different groups of people. Uh, I want to talk about you know Jesus coming, and he is royalty, he is divinity, and yet there is humility there. And they're to talk about a processional cross. I don't know how many of our listeners have a processional cross that their churches use. That was something that we instituted here a long time ago at Epiphany and now Water of Life. And I bring it up because we'll be using the processional cross again for Reformation in a, a couple of weeks. And then we always use it for big festival Sundays like Reformation, Christ the King, uh, Christmas Day, Epiphany Festival, Palm Sunday. And we sing, lift high the cross. And we have a member that's building a processional cross for our Caledonia campus that he and I went up to a church supply store, bought a used uh, brass crucifix, and then uh he's going to be making it out of uh, barnwood because what's interesting and unique about the church furniture up at our Caledonia campus is when the church was built, there was an old barn there that was taken down and they took the barn boards and they saved them. And then someone built the altar lectern, uh, baptismal font and altar from that barnwood. And now we're going to be using that same barnwood for a processional cross. And the idea is it is 
old, it's rugged looking, there's going to be the knots and so forth and dark wood. And it'll fit perfectly as a contrast to that processional cross. And again, that processional cross, it reminds us there is divinity, there is glory. We're lifting high the cross, but it, it's a cross and there is humility there. I think of the first time that, I, I think it was the first time I saw it in a, in a Lutheran setting uh, was when I was in college and uh, they used it in chapel. And this was even before the Chapel of the Christ was built at MLC. They were still having chapel in the auditorium. And uh, they had a processional cross with candles that came in to the chapel service. And then uh, the next day in class, one of our uh, professors asked us about what we thought of it or, or what our reaction was to it. And we discussed it a little bit. And I remember that uh, there there was one or two uh Guys, and the, there were one or two uh, classmates that were uh, kind of disturbed, or, or they thought, "Oh, that that's a bad idea." And uh, obviously, nobody can say that you should have processional crosses. That would be against the gospel to say that. Uh, but uh, also, I think it would be just as much against the gospel to say you shouldn't. Uh, and if you're looking for reasons to uh, to have one, I suppose you could point out that yeah, Jesus is having G- Jesus had a parade here. And uh, he had a, a very public ceremony of marching into Jerusalem, and he was okay with drawing attention to himself. Um, and so if we look at it that way, as drawing attention to Christ, I can see how that would be a fitting thing to talk about. Um, the other parts of this chapter are uh, sometimes maybe difficult to understand in, in the sense that um, uh it, I, well, may, I'm sort of skipping one, uh, Jesus cleansing the Father's house. Um, and uh, we, we talked about a lot of these things in Mark. Maybe one thing that we didn't talk about in Mark is uh, in verse 16 and following, where uh, the Pharisees point out that uh, Jesus should silence, they tell him he should silence his followers. And he quotes, from the lips of little children and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And maybe I'm just bringing this up because I had a little bit of a a scuffle with some of my students that uh, come from non-Lutheran Christian denominations in class this week about infant baptism. And uh, there's there's some important things to discuss in uh, verse 16 about the ability of infants to believe. Yeah, and I always bring it up too with parents because parents, when they have little kids, it's hard. It's hard to be in church. Uh, And they want to the temptation is there for them to stop coming because they say, I don't get anything out of it. I say, yeah, but eventually the kids will learn to sit still and they get something out of it. And the parents will tell me too how Im- how special it is when the kids are going home and then they recount something that they heard. And I think just to draw everybody's attention to the verse itself, Jesus quotes this Old Testament Psalm 8, from the lips of little children and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Uh, So in other words, the little kids that are squawking or crying or or making a scene in church, uh, couldn't you sort of see that a little bit as praise? Yeah, they're here. They're here. I I think I've told this story, but I'm going to repeat it. Uh, at my first congregation, the average age when we got there of membership was 65. Wow. And uh, we had a couple of little boys, and there was at least one other family that had a couple of little kids. And uh, there was a lady that requested a prayer. She said in church she wanted to have a prayer uh, thanking God for the sound of children crying in church. 
because she said it's been such a long time since we've heard that at our congregation that it's a wonderful thing to hear it again. There you go. And then right after that, then Jesus is the next morning coming back into town into Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree and it doesn't have any figs on it. The point of what Jesus is demonstrating here is he wants uh, fruit. Uh, the religious leaders had a lot of leaves. There's a lot of outward show, but not a lot of fruit. And by causing the tree to wither, Jesus is showing his disciples his ultimate power over his persecutors. Uh, and the disciples would have that same power when they went out into the world and they faced the same persecution at the hands of the same kind of people. And I think that today we can see a lot of leaves on Christians, but not a lot of fruit. Uh, Christianity is not about how we look to others. It's about how we look to God. It's about the fruits of faith that we display. But a lot of times those fruits of faith are hidden and only God sees them and knows about them. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to discuss in this chapter, like I said, again, we're going we're gonna to sort of zip through. I'm going to zip through parts that uh, Mark has already covered in his gospel. But uh, the only other thing I wanted to discuss was really the two sons. And uh, this is a parable that Jesus says about a father who tells his son to go and work in the vineyard. Uh, and then uh, he says, I won't. He's, he's verbally disrespectful to his father. But, uh, and here is the whole key to the parable in verse 29, he changed, the son changed his mind and went. Uh, and Jesus is there giving us a definition of what the word repent means. Repent means to have a change of mind. And uh, saying, I was wrong, now I'm going to act differently. I'm going to bear different fruit, if you want to take the fig tree analogy from before. Uh, and then if you want to use the leaves analogy from before too, the other son uh, put on a really good show and put up the front of, uh, I'm an obedient son. I do what my father asks and I'm respectful of him. When the father asked him to go and work in the vineyard, he said, I will, sir. But then he did not go. And uh, that's, of course, pointing out the hypocrisy of people who claim to be followers of Christ, but then don't uh, show any fruit of faith in their lives. And, uh, and, and I think the biggest point I want to make is simply that um, Jesus here defines repentance for us. Repent means to have a change of mind. And then the last thing I wanted to bring up is just kind of bringing to mind what this chapter is about when it is talking about Jesus' ministry. Uh, how does it help us understand the nature of his kingdom in which we're serving? Uh, you see power and humility combined. Jesus is a great king. He enters Jerusalem to do battle with sin and Satan, and he's going to succeed, but he's going to succeed humbly on the cross. And to apply that to today, we see a lot of upheaval in our culture. If you're reading the comic books and so forth, you know, Bat, or, uh, Robin is gay, you know, Batman's Robin. And now in the new comics that are coming out this month, they're making the new Superman as bisexual. Uh, marriage, the whole institution of marriage has become a joke. Uh, I, I, how exactly does Superman's romance life play into uh, his superhero work? That's what I'd like to know. 
Well, sorry, he, that was a, he's going to be going against all of the big bad conservatives. I'm going to guess that's the way they're going to make Lex, is Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor's a Republican. Is that? I'm going to guess that's the way they're going to make him a white Republican. They're going to make Superman is all about uh, standing up for people's rights and the uh, and the environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you also see. In the last few years, people are afraid. They're afraid of the virus. They're afraid of people. Uh, others are afraid of racist teaching in public schools under the guise of anti-racism. Uh, we're all afraid of uh, rising gas prices, the, uh, the shelves in the stores being empty. But what can we do as Christians? Well, we need to go on the offensive. The time is ripe and the time is right to share a simple and powerful message of a crucified king. Uh, I think a lot of times we're going to call ourselves conservative Christians. And just that word conservative means playing defense. Uh, but playing defense means we're losing ground. We need to be aggressive Christians going on the offense of winning back the territory from the devil. And that's what we see Jesus doing when he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. If, if you listen to this podcast if with any regularity, you probably get the impression that we speak in uh, from a very conservative viewpoint. Uh, but I, I'd like to just reinforce what you just said. And that is, I, I don't really like the word conservative. Um, it, I don't necessarily like applying it to myself because it just means, yeah, conserving. It means preserving or, or um, uh, like you said, playing defense. And um, th- that that's, that's a recipe for disease. I forget the, where I was going with that. Yeah, well, I was looking up uh, different words in the thesaurus for offensive, but they're all bad words. Uh, you know, oh, going on the offensive. Going on the offensive. But the thesaurus looked at it as being offensive. And so that's where he came up with the word aggressive. Maybe there's a better word. I'll be looking for it. But I think it, it does fit. Uh, and aggression, too, is a bad thing They oftentimes, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, little boys, they say, or they're, uh, they're showing their masculine aggressive, aggressiveness. Well, that's a good thing for little boys to be aggressive. It is good for us as Christians to be aggressive, to go up against the devil. And that's what we're going to see over and over again in the scriptures. Uh, Chapter 22 uh, just has one major section that I'd like to uh, touch on. Uh, I'm happy to discuss any others with you, but uh, right now it's the first uh, 14 verses. And again, because this is something that came up recently in class, we were going through 1 Peter and talking about election or predestination. And it is so easy to fall into a number of traps when it comes to discussing uh, predestination. Um, But uh, mainly you can sum it up by saying that uh, if you end up in heaven, that is entirely and only the work of God picking you. Uh, if you end up in hell, that is entirely and only the work of yourself, and uh, you're you're the only one to blame for it. Um, how can that exactly make sense? Uh, it won't really make sense. But Jesus does a wonderful job of helping us to uh, wrap our minds around it with this parable, um, because uh, when you think about predestination, if people teach a double predestination, if, if they say that God decided ahead of time before the world began to send people to hell, well, that is essentially saying that God wanted people to go to hell. 
And uh, there are many Bible passages that tell us just the opposite. Uh, and But see, people who uh, teach a double predestination, what they will want to say is, is that all of the Bible passages where God says he wants all men to be saved or that he doesn't want sinners to die, they'll say, it just looks like, it just seems like God doesn't want them to die. But really he, before time began, he wanted them to be condemned. Well, I ask you, as you read this parable in verses uh, 1 through uh, 14 of Matthew 22, does it seem at any point like the uh, king who prepared the wedding banquet, does it ever seem like he didn't want those uh, people that he first invited at the banquet? No, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, he wants them there. He's upset when they don't show up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then the mystery is that Jesus gets to the end of it. And in verse 14 says, for many are called, many are invited, but few are chosen. So in other words, if you're at this feast, if you're at this wedding banquet, you're only there because he picked you to be there. He elected you to be there. Uh, so it, it kind of keeps the nice tension between the two. Yeah. And just to focus on the tense of the verbs too, many are called but it doesn't say, but few choose to come. Oh, yeah. But few are chosen. God does the choosing. It's a, it's a, a passive verb instead of an active verb. The, the people that are there didn't choose to be there. The people that are there were chosen to be there. Right. And he invites everyone, but then those who don't want to come, they reject the invitation. They don't show up. And so those are the Jews. And then so God goes out and he sends the servants to go get more people that are out in the street, you and I, uh, you know, Jeremy, you and I, and those listening, we're those that are in the street. We're the bums in the gutter, uh, the drunkards, the uh, ladies walking the street corner. Those are, that's kind of what he's saying when he goes, says, go to the main crossroads and find anybody you can pull in. And then it, it talks about, too, uh, that the king prepares wedding clothes. You just come in, you're going to be dirty, smelly, you're going to be wearing your old clothes, and he gives you wedding clothes. And then the guy that shows up and says, what I've got on is fine and refuses to wear the wedding clothes. He gets kicked out. I, I often like uh, comparing that one to baptism. Uh, it, it, you could say it's also faith, just having faith and not trusting in your own works. But uh, saying, I, I want to be dressed before God how I want to be dressed um, is uh, not acceptable. He says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And if you know about baptism and you have an opportunity to be baptized uh, and you say, no, I want to wear my own clothes to the banquet, uh, that is the one that here says gets tied up hand and foot and thrown out. And then the next part, uh, the Pharisees are plotting a trap. And you can tell they're plotting a trap because they're working with the Herodians whom they hate uh, the Herodians support Roman government. They are named after King Herod. And so they ask the question of Jesus, uh, you know, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus calls out their evil purpose and says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? And he asks for a coin and he asks whose inscriptions are on it. And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And he says, therefore give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And I wanted to talk about that because I've heard a lot of people use that quote uh, with Jesus of giving to God what is God's and Caesar's what is Caesar's when it comes to respect of our government. And that's true, that we give to Caesar 
our respect and our honor. We give them our taxes. But uh, I'm always liking to think of this in ways of that's a good Sunday school answer Mm -hmm. or maybe even eighth grade catechism answer. But we're deeper than that. We want, we need to get into a master degree level. Well, and what so, is the God would give to God? What is God's part? Well, that, yeah, that's what I want to get at is uh, when we apply these words to our governing authorities, when we see them allowing for and promoting uh, no fault divorce, gay marriage, they're making a mockery of God's sixth commandment. When public school authorities, this was the guy running for governor in Virginia, he said in a debate that parents have no right to say what's being taught to their children in their public schools. That's making a mockery of God's fourth commandment. When the government promotes and subsidizes legalized murder of the unborn, they're making a mockery of God's fifth commandment and so on. So when governing authorities put themselves over God and in place of God, they are demanding that we give to Caesar what only belongs to God. And so we give to Caesar what only belongs to Caesar. And so we need to dig deeper. We give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but when Caesar begins taking things that only belong to God, then we need to stand up again. Uh, I'd like to, did you have other things in chapter 22 that you wanted to cover? I think that is, that's good. Uh, the the big chunk of chapter 23 that Mark does not cover are the uh, woes and warnings. And uh, this is um, a long list from Jesus where uh, it, it was kind of funny. Uh, in the previous congregation that I served, there was a couple that came to church and uh, were interested in joining our church possibly. Uh, and they started coming to a few Bible classes and even some instruction classes. Uh, but they, they told me the one thing that they didn't want to hear was any kind of uh, bad mouthing of other churches. And uh, I tried to make the point that I would hope that that would not be the predominant message that I would do, but I, I can't make any promises about what I say based on God's word. And uh, when we were talking about this at their home, it was interesting because we had just in Bible class a day before that gone through this chapter of Matthew's gospel. And uh, I don't know if they totally grasped what I was saying, but I wanted to point out to them that, uh, do, you, do you see what Jesus is doing in this whole chapter? He's actually condemning other denom- other religions or other uh, people that profess to belong to the true religion and are uh, actually teaching falsely. Um, so this whole chapter is uh, Jesus being, I, I guess the word would be polemical. He is uh, picking a fight, if you want to say, not maybe not picking it, but uh he is he is taking a stand and uh, speaking out against falsehood, uh, and that's what all of these woes are in uh, verses uh, thirteen to the end of chapter twenty-three. Well, that's an interesting way that you put that because uh, just a few hours ago I had taught on Revelation chapters ten and eleven, and in Revelation eleven, it, John is given the picture of the temple and the courtyard and so forth, but those that are in the temple are. Uh, the believers. Those in the outside there are uh, the Gentiles, but the Gentiles here are 
those that look like the believers but are really hypocrites. And I and I applied that in this way too, because uh, those would be the heathens and so forth. They're not not so much the heathens. The heathens are outside yet, but those that are maybe of other denominations that are also not believers then. They look like believers, but they're not. Hmm. And they can even be in the Lutheran church. It can even be Wisconsin Synod if they look like they're Christians, but they're not. So just, and I always bring up in Revelation, you just got to find everything in Revelation elsewhere in Scripture. And I, I like how you brought up that what you find in Revelation 11 is what you find here in Matthew 23. Uh Jesus gets, uh, I, I have to imagine that he said some of this with quite the sarcastic tone, maybe not just, not only scolding and, and, and yelling, but even a little bit sarcastic. Uh, I, I'm talking about verses 16 and 17, where um, he's sort of poking fun at the way the Pharisees would split hairs and how they would say, uh, well, if you, if you swear by the temple, uh, it's okay if you don't follow through on that promise. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you uh, really better make sure that you uh, keep that promise. Um, and maybe in another example that I would think of is uh, I've, I've heard of the case or I know of a, a case, not personally, but uh, uh, of somebody who very much wants to uh, try to say that uh, he never broke apart his marriage by uh, his addiction to pornography, um, that uh, he had an addiction to pornography and uh, it tore apart his marriage and, and he ended up divorced. Uh, but he he wants to take issue with the fact that he was uh, divorced unlawfully because it, he says, Jesus said, it's only because of, um, it's only because of unfaithfulness that you are uh, to get a divorce. And I was not unfaithful. I just had this pornography addiction. And, and that really is turning into exactly what Jesus is talking about here, because you're trying to draw, you're trying to split hairs. You're trying to draw a fine line and say, well, if, uh, if, if you commit this sin, then uh, that is adultery, but this sin is not quite adultery yet. Um, and anytime you want to walk down that path, whether it's with the sixth commandment or uh, any other commandment, uh, that that's what Jesus is pronouncing a woe upon here. And, and the big thing I want to bring up here with these woes is that, you know, we are living in a culture right now uh, that we're going to, that Christians often feel like they are, uh, the recipients of woes being spoken against us. That if we speak out against a gay activism or a transgender agenda, critical race theory in a workplace, because some of our members talk about that or talking about uh, mandated gene therapy, whatever, and then we're going to be canceled because we're speaking out. And yet, Notice what Jesus does. He's not afraid of being canceled. He goes on the offensive. He speaks woes. He cancels everyone else. And that's the key is we need to be strong with the law. I think even as Lutherans, we, we talk about law and gospel, but we can be tempted too to be soft on the law. No, we have to speak the law. We have to speak the woes so then the sweetness of the gospel comes later. 
in uh, verses 23 and 24, uh, Jesus makes some uh, statements that really nicely sum up a, a lot of the thoughts of the whole chapter. Um, he says, Woe to you experts in the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You, you give 10% of your, uh, your, your herbs, and, uh, but you neglected more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should have, here's the part I want to focus on. You should have done these things and not failed to do the other things. Uh, I had a seminary professor and a choir director who always used to say, do the one without leaving the other undone. And uh, his point by that was, uh, whenever you come across questions where people say things like, um, well, do we want to uh, do mission work or do we want to beautify our worship? Uh, should we have really nice church services or should we send missionaries out to places that have never heard the gospel before? Uh, why are we making an argument between the two? We should really do both. Or, or on a personal level, maybe members of uh, our local congregations here, you might hear people say, well, does God want me to earn a living and support my family or does he want me to come to church on Sunday? Uh, it's as if you can't do both. Well, here Jesus is saying you, you, you do need to do both. Um, and then uh, you strain a gnat, but you swallow a camel, he says, blind guides in verse 24. Um, a lot of times we get really fixated on small pride. This is something I have to confess more than uh, on a personal level, more than anything else, that I'll get very fixated on small projects that I have a lot of fun doing and that I think are very important because Jesus said, you know, I should do this or I should do that. And so that's why I'm doing this. Uh, but all the while, there are a lot bigger, more important tasks that uh, need to get done instead. It just came from a conference and the presenter made a comment about, for us as pastors, but this goes for everyone, is about making lists and then making a list of what you need to get done. And he, he pointed out is you never have to put on the list the things you like to do. You know, so if you, you know, if you like to brew beer mm -hmm. or if I like to do, you know, a building project or something like that, I don't need to put that on the list. Uh, I don't need to put on the list, oh, prepare a Bible study, prepare a sermon because, you know, I like to do those things. So those are things I'm going to get done first. But if it's making an evangelism call, making an elder call, those kind of things, uh, if it's fixing something in the house that I don't want to do, better put that on the list. You know, that's, that was his point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and then he also talked about, we all know this too, uh, to do, because pastors get sucked into this, of the urgent versus the important. Hmm. You know, we often get sucked into the urgent. So then maybe the, some of the things that you like uh, really should get put on a list sooner or later if they're never on, if they're never on your list. For instance, I, you mentioned my hobby. Uh, it's been several months since I've uh, done a patch. Um, it, or I'm not, you, I'm using that as an example. Uh, you could think of anything that is your leisure time. If all you ever do is work, 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 um, then maybe you do need to prioritize uh, date night with your wife, for example. Right. But, you know, he was referencing like urgent, you know, we'll always get sucked in. Hey, we got a text, you get a phone call, you get an email and you get sucked away. For me, writing a sermon, writing a Bible study, those kind of things, I'm going to block out hours. I don't want to be, you know, the emails and so forth, those can be important. Those often are urgent, but they're not necessarily important that they can be done later on. The important things for a pastor is your sermon prep and your Bible study. And then, you know, a couple other things. That's your main 
bread and butter. Those are the things you got to get done. Then you do the other urgent things. But that goes with anything in life. And you're right. If it's the important thing is scheduling a date night, you better put that in there and Mm. then make sure that that's, uh, you you keep bumping that up so you get it done. Yeah. Um, I'm going to kind of... uh roll chapter 24 and 25 into one another simply because uh, they are all one, these two chapters are all one um, monologue that uh, Jesus delivers about the end of time. Uh, And it's important to remember that the last days are something that started as soon as Jesus ascended into heaven. A lot of times you'll hear people and, and even Christians say, well, probably mainly Christians, talk about, oh, I think we're living in the end times. Yes, we've been living in the end times uh, ever since the New Testament was written. Uh, and uh, Jesus makes that very clear when he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and he compares it to the way that um, the end of the world is going to be very similar to the event of Jerusalem getting destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Um, The disciples start the chapter 24 by asking about this. Um, He, Jesus says, uh, not one stone will be left on another. There he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman army. Uh, And, and they ask in uh, verse three, Tell us, the disciples asked Jesus, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? They thought this temple is going to be around until the end of the world. Jerusalem is going to be a a Jewish predominated city until uh, Jesus comes again. Uh, And so they really conflated these two events in their minds. And so Jesus sort of lovingly helps them uh, tease out or or comb out the details and differences between the two while sort of showing some overlap and comparison between them. And and for you listeners, then, you can kind of break this up. As Jeremy said, Jesus tells the story and weaves it in such a way for the disciples and us. It's hard to understand always. Is this talking about... uh, the, the signs of the end of the world or the destruction of Jerusalem, Christ's return. Uh, but you can kind of break it up in verses 4 through 14 are the signs of the uh, end of the world. Then verses 15 through 22 are the destruction of Jerusalem. 23 through 31 are Christ's return at the end of the world. Uh, and then again, I just finished talking about this uh, in our last Revelation study on chapters 8 and 9, and you're, you're encouraged to go to the Water of Life YouTube page, and you can look at the the channel there, and you're going to find the, the video list of our Revelation Bible studies. And in there, I talk about how Revelation 8 and 9 is really Matthew 24. There's a lot of difficult language there and pictures, and yet when you... Uh, understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, you understand revelation. That revelation is just picture language. Uh, Think of a kid's picture book. Uh, And then for us as adults, you know, we read the novels without pictures. And the the novel without pictures is Matthew 24. The, The pictures come in revelation. I'd like to point out another theme that ties these two chapters together. It's, it's very much the, uh, 
emphasis on, again, election. Um, Jesus mentions several times God's elect, the chosen people that are going to inherit eternal life because God picked them, not that they picked or chose or decided to believe in God. Um, we, we could talk uh, in verses 15, 16, and 17 about the, uh, the Antichrist. Uh, we've, we've done that before, though, uh, the abomination that causes desolation. That's really what the church is, isn't it? Uh, there's, there's a group of believers, and if uh, something in the midst of them causes the church to empty out, that is, people in the church to stop being believers— that is an abomination that desolates God's church, isn't it? Um, so I just yep. thought I'd throw that in there. If you got a comment, go ahead. No, it was interesting. I was talking to someone because uh, you and I had just finished recording the day before about the Antichrist and the beast uh, out of the land on, in Revelation chapter 13. And I was explaining how this is a... Uh, a church body that is anti-Christian and it will work with the, uh, the church. I mean, it will work with a government that persecutes Christians, the beast out of the sea. And this is a lady who is Catholic. She said, Oh, that's definitely the Catholic church. And I said, Oh, and I told her over the phone, I said, uh, you're a lot more Lutheran than you think. Well, mm-hmm. she's in our adult classes right now to, to become Lutheran. But it was kind of interesting, as you and I have talked about this in previous podcasts, both in Thessalonians and in Revelation, of the papacy being the Antichrist, and then any church, like uh, can be the Catholic Church, that can be against the true Christian church, like when uh, we're coming up to Reformation, when the Pope calls Luther anathema. And he and in their uh, official doctrines, when they say that anyone that believes they are saved by grace and faith alone are anathema, meaning they're damned. Mm-hmm. That's us. Yeah. And they've never re- uh, retracted that. Right. Uh, and so that would then be uh, what we're talking about here again. Uh, so keep track of that in this chapter, uh, but also keep track of those references Jesus keeps making to his elect. The this talks a lot about election. Uh, and uh, then in verses 36 uh, through 51, um, Jesus talks about, uh, dare I say it, the rapture. I had this question in Bible study the other day when okay. when he says, oh, just lost it here. At that time, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Yep. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Yeah. And so the question, and so the question was uh, of, uh, yeah, is this the rapture? What's interesting is if, if there are church bodies out there that say there's a secret rapture, that's really what the problem is. Uh, we would believe in a, uh, we, we don't really want to call it a rapture because that would be so confusing, but uh, we, we believe in a, a final coming of Jesus, that, that judgment day will be cataclysmic, it'll be just... Um, mind-blowingly scary, and um, but it's but it's all going to happen in a public and open way. There's not going to be a secret taking of uh, believers out of the world. It's going to be very obvious. And uh, the, the, for those church bodies that teach that there's going to be a secret rapture, and they say that uh, being taken away is the um, uh, the believers are being taken out of the world, you just have to look back at verse 39. And Jesus says about the time of the flood uh, in verse 39, 
who is it that is taken away in the flood? I'll go ahead and... It's, it's the people outside of the ark that are swept right. away. And, and so if you're, if you're taking these words as a rapture, uh, the people who are taken away are, would, be the, um, would be the unbelievers. I was trying to think as you were talking, but it, the name escapes me. This came out years ago, back when I was a young pastor. Uh, the Left, was, Left Behind yeah, series? Yeah, thank you. The Left Behind series. There was a, a movie with Kirk Cameron in it, and, and it was an awful movie. Most Christian movies are awful, just bad acting, <laughs> bad scripts, and so forth. And this was uh, this was one of them. We, we got together, and we watched it, and just made fun of it the entire time we watched it. But that was the whole premise of the movie, is they base that on a false idea of a thousand-year reign in Revelation, and then also a misunderstanding of this verse. So then, what is this talking about, of a man... Two men in a field and one's gone, or two men, two people uh, working elsewhere and one gone and one left. It's really just saying this is going to be a very drastic and surprising thing, uh, and uh, it, it'll it'll even be so drastic and surprising that uh, somebody very close to you, somebody that you uh, maybe work with or that you are uh, in the family with. Um, that that uh, don't don't actually have true faith in Christ. Uh, don't don't let it surprise you when uh, that person is is suddenly and very drastically taken out of your life or taken away. Uh, and uh, the the important thing is not that uh, you get caught up in. Um, the important thing is what happens after the taking away and the other one being left. Uh, does it, does Jesus say the one is taken away and the other is left and then the earth goes on for another thousand years? No, he says one will be taken away and the other left. And that's the end. That's judgment day. Yeah. And so the thing I want to wrap up is, and this goes back to the very beginning of the chapter is anytime you see false Christ, wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecution of the church, Christians falling away from their faith, deceptive prophets, uh, an increase in wickedness, a de- decrease in love, and yet the gospel being preached through all the world, those are the signs of the end times. Those are the visions of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls in Revelation. Uh, and we see these things happening, but we've seen these things happening throughout the end or throughout the past 2,000 years. Uh, Someone asked me in our Revelation study today, uh, do you see this coming now? It was the, the last woe. Do you see this happening now? And I said, ah, uh, what do you think? And they said, oh, yeah, it's coming. It's, it's now. And I said, see, you said it. Because if I said it and Jesus uh, comes back, oh, this wasn't the last woe. It was the second to last woe. The last woe would be coming later. And I said, if I said it, then Jesus, if he came back tonight, he said, ah, you told people that uh, these aren't the worst, uh, worst things. Because when you read Revelation, you have to understand it's getting worse. And there's going to be uh, what we were talking about today, that we're in the three and a half years of the New Testament time. But there's going to be three and a half days when things get really, really bad. And that's when they asked me, is this now? And I said, you say it because I'm not going to, because could it get worse? Yeah, it could. 
Mm-hmm. All the things that we're seeing and that Jesus describes in Matthew 24 as the signs of the end times, we've seen them, but we can see more yet. But every time we see this, this is the, uh, now we're getting into this season of end times and advent, and that whole idea of those times is, look out, Jesus is coming, so uh, pick your head up, get your eyes open, and stay awake. Uh, how do you like to uh, interpret the parable of the virgins? Uh, this was one, I've, I've preached on it a couple of times. Actually, one time I even preached on it for a wedding. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, the bride and the groom wanted uh, the the virgins, the the wedding banquet to sort of predominate in their theme of their service. And so this was the text and the gospel for that service. But um, it, it's a familiar story for students of the Bible. Uh, there are five foolish and five wise virgins. Uh, virgin, you should really understand to mean bridesmaid. Uh, there are 10 bridesmaids and uh, five of them brought uh, oil and five didn't bring extra oil uh, because when you're waiting in Jewish culture, you're waiting for the groom to finish building his house so that he can come back and bring his new wife into his home. Um, that is uh, that 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 th- as soon as that's ready, they wanted to get that marriage going. Uh, and so if, if he finished his work in the middle of the night, then he would come back and get his bride in the middle of the night. And uh, one thing that's notable about this section is that there there is no bride mentioned. Uh, it, it's kind of, Jesus gives you the impression that uh, it's the group of uh, bridesmaids altogether that, that are the bride. But uh, I guess the big question always is, what is the oil uh, that, is the um, you need to have you need to have extra of it. You need to have more than enough of it. Uh, I've, I've heard the interpretation that it's the Holy Spirit, or that it's uh, faith, or that it's the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and finally, none of those are wrong answers. They kind of all cover the same field. But um, do you like to distinguish exactly what the oil is that need we need extra of? Well, it's been a long time since I've preached on the text, so I'm not really sure what I've said in the past. I think I've made a lot of distinction then of just being prepared that, uh, you know, both of these lady, these groups of ladies are, uh, are believers. And yet at the end, the, the foolish virgins are those who fell away because they did not remain spiritually awake. And that's where that parable follows the clear uh, signs of Matthew 24, because people weren't paying attention to the signs and they fell asleep. Now they're not awake. They're not make. I guess the way I've taught the oil is word and sacrament. They're oh, yeah. not making use of word and sacrament. Absolutely. Uh, and so Jesus is warning us here, you know, to pay attention to the signs to not be like the foolish virgins, because the significance of midnight in the, the sixth verse is it's late. Uh, and so it seems like Jesus is taking a long time to come back, and it is. The one thing that I have discovered in more recent years of preaching on this text is in verse 13, when it says, keep watch, I think as a kid growing up, I always heard Jesus say, keep watch at the end of this parable. And I thought it meant keep looking up at the sky because Jesus could come back at any moment. Actually, that is not the sense in which he said, keep watch. Uh, The whole parable is about watching that you have a sufficient amount of oil in the jars. So uh, if you really want to get 
punny about it, you could uh, say Jesus is telling you to keep watch on your oil levels. <laughs> there you go. And then you go on to the next parable and he gives, uh, uh, the master goes away. So that's Jesus. He goes away and he gives his servants some talents. Well, the talent is worth 6,000 denarii. So a denarii is worth a day's wages. So this is a lot of money. So imagine that a denarii, if you're getting paid, say, $100 a day, you know, just to do the math, this is $6,000 the master leaves with you to do with however you want. And whether you're going to invest it or you're just going to bury it. And isn't this generous of God that he, he says, I'm going to let you do what you want with my resources. Uh, just the point is do something. Uh, don't just uh, say, well, God's going to take all the credit for uh, if I'm saved and, and all, he, God's going to take all the credit for my good works. So uh, get, why should I do anything with my life? Um, that's really the point of, of the wicked servant. And uh, I, I heard a neat devotion one time point out in verse 25, what is it that motivated the, the wicked servant? He says, uh, I was afraid. It was, it was fear that was really driving him. And, and that's a good sign to think about. If, if what you're doing in life is driven by fear, uh, that's uh, maybe a sign that you are not making the best use of your, of your talents or of your resources that God gives. One of the things that we've been discussing with our church council is that, you know, should we send out a time and talent survey? Well, you know, Good, wise leaders have said, well, we're not quite ready for time and talent survey because we don't have everything lined up right. We don't want people to be frustrated because they signed up uh, that they want to be used. And then we, we have no mechanism of how to, to utilize them. So what I've been working with uh, with some people is to do, you know, small group Bible study and uh, growth groups in people's homes where we're going to do a spiritual gift Bible study. So instead of saying, what do you like to do, is rather, uh, let's look at what Scripture says and discover your gifts and see what you're good at and then, and then find the jobs for you. Not based on, again, on what you like to do, but what, uh, where can you best serve in God's kingdom because of where God has given you those talents. I'm just going to conclude with uh, verses 31 uh, to 46. Uh, this is especially a familiar section for uh, students of the Bible where Jesus describes in maybe the clearest detail uh, ever uh, of what Judgment Day will be like and the, the actual judging part of it. When we say judgment, we're not talking about God investigating or examining evidence and then and then rendering a verdict. He has already decided his verdict. Uh based on uh, what what Jesus says happens. But uh, there are lots of things that we could talk about here. The main thing that I would like to say, though, is that um, it, there is a neat wrap-up to this whole theme that we've been discussing throughout this episode of election. Uh, and you can see that most clearly in, uh, in verse 34. Uh, Jesus is the king on his throne, and he says to those, the sheep on his right, who are inheriting salvation, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So, when was it that Jesus, uh, when, when was it that God first decided that you would be saved? 
Uh, at, well, before creation, before there is. Yeah. Before there was even a world, but at the, at the beginning of time, God decided that the people who would be saved would be saved. Well, then what about the people who are condemned? Doesn't that mean that he uh, left out them or that he uh, wanted them to end up in hell? Uh, and the answer is no. Uh, and you can illustrate that with verse 41. Uh, then the, Jesus, the king on the throne, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. God never wanted humans to go there. Hell was originally designed for punishing the fallen spirits. And uh, anybody who ends up there, it's not because God wanted them there. It's because uh, they, they, they put themselves there. And uh, that, I think, is a really nice way to uh, wrap up this discussion on election. Right. Yeah, whenever I talk about hell in a sermon, I usually talk about how uh, God does not send anyone to hell, that God respects people, that if people choose not to worship him here on earth, he's not going to force them to worship them, worship him for an eternity. And so he then sends them to the one place in the universe where he is not present, which is hell. He honors their choices. Or, or he's, not, he's not present with his grace and forgiveness, at least. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the idea, though, is where you know, people will say, well, God s- sends people to hell that's so unloving. No, God honors their choices. They chose, they, they d- chose to not believe in God. So that's the difference. We don't choose to believe, but you do we, have, we can you choose do have to a, not believe. You do have a, a terrifying ability. And, and really, I've even heard people say, do you really want to call it an ability or a power or a, to, but yes, we do have the ability to uh, reject or walk away from God. And uh, that, that is, uh, that's not really freedom, but that is something that, that you could do, but why would you want to? And the last thing I wanted to bring up then is verse 40. Then the king will answer them. Amen. I tell you, just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Notice that Jesus does not mention any of the failures of the believers, of the sheep. Their sins of commission, those they've done, and their sins of omission, the, fail, the things they failed to do, are not found anywhere in this book. They've been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. So there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in, in a week, when we begin the season of end times in our Racine campus, uh, we have a set of, so we have a triptych. A triptych is three sets of paintings. For us, the center one is always the stained glass window of Jesus as the good shepherd. And then the other two that look like stained glass windows but are really paintings, those change for the church year. And the one that's on the left side of the church behind the pulpit is this picture. That when I designed it with the artist, it's Jesus sitting on his throne and on his right instead of sheep are the believers. And on his left are the unbelievers. The unbelievers are weeping, they're sad as a demon is ushering them to hell. But on Jesus' right are those believers with an angel. And the angel has the scroll. And the only, you can't read it, but the idea is the only thing that's written on the scroll are their names. Everything they've ever done wrong or failed to do right, it's gone. So we finish Matthew next week, and then we're going to be starting the study of Paul's pastoral epistles, uh, his letters to young pastors Timothy and Titus. 
So this is Pastor Zarling with Kid Flash. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>